Father, once again, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everybody wants to be known for something. I think that's true of towns as well, especially small towns. You're driving out around places, and you see these signs, you know, the, the home of the state champions, the, the home of uh, Miss North Carolina 2017. You know, I've always thought that there ought to be a sign on the outskirts of Clinton, Indiana, birthplace of Wesley Oden. You know, I, I looked. I looked online for that. All I get is Clinton, Indiana has this little Italy festival every year. That's the home of it. And I'm thinking, wait, what? I, 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 so I'm going to start a writing campaign. I'll give you information about that later. Everybody has a place. I remember driving through Iowa one time years ago, listening to the radio, and they're having this big event in Riverside, Iowa. And what I discovered is that it's the, it, they're celebrating the, the pre-birth of Captain James T. Kirk of Star Trek. In the books, he's, he's supposed to have been born in Riverside, Iowa in 2233. So they have a pre-birthday celebration every year in Riverside, Iowa, and they have this great big weekend event where, where they come together and they celebrate the pre-birth of James T. Kirk. I thought that was just interesting. That Man, it, you take advantage of anything you can, right, to get some people to come to your town. One of my favorite signs, though, I found, I was looking through the Internet this week, was this place called Rennie. I don't even know where this place is, but the sign says, Welcome to Rennie, home of something or somebody famous, someday, maybe. <laughs> They're just begging for somebody in town to do something, be something, right? Everybody wants that. I think about that with Bethlehem. You know, there ought to be a sign outside of Bethlehem that says, Bethlehem, birthplace of Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, I, I did find that there are a few places where you'll find City of David, but I don't see anything about that with Jesus. And yet Bethlehem is so central to this story. Bethlehem is about six miles from Jerusalem. Might as well have been 60 miles from Jerusalem, the contrast between these two cities. Bethlehem, maybe a few thousand people at the time of Jesus' birth. Jerusalem is estimated maybe 600,000, maybe even up to a million people living in the city of Jerusalem. Could not be more of a contrast between size and importance and significance for life. That's not that Bethlehem doesn't have a history. It's the place where Jacob buries his beloved wife Rachel back in Genesis. It's the place where Boaz and Ruth meet and live, and eventually they become the grandparents of, great-grandparents of David. And it's the home of David, the birthplace of David. It's called the city of David. So it's not as they don't have anything to boast about. But when it comes to what the writers of Scripture say, this is the significance of Bethlehem, it's about the prophecy in Micah. Micah says... You're the least of the cities of Judah. When Matthew mentions that prophecy, he turns it a bit and says, you're not the least of the cities of Judah. I think they're saying the same thing, just in different ways. 
I think what they're saying is Bethlehem is a small, insignificant, out-of-the-way place. Yeah, they've got a history that they can look back on, but in terms of what's happening now and the significance of the world now, nothing. But nevertheless, out of you will come something bigger than you could have ever imagined. And is that sort of what cities are looking for, towns are looking for? I spent seven of my first eight years in the little town of, of Mitchell, Indiana, in southern Indiana. And it was, I'd say it was famous for two things. One is it was the home for years of carpenter buses. They made school buses. I, 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 the scene, I still can picture it. When you drive into town or you're driving out of town, this parking lot, the sea of yellow buses in that scene. Even for a kid who really didn't like going to school, it was like, that is kind of inspiring to see all of those buses. But the other thing Mitchell's famous for is the home of Gus Grissom, who was the second American in space. He orbited the earth. He flew in the Gemini program. Tragically, he and, and Roger Chafee and Ed White were killed in a, as they were testing a rocket on the, on the, on the landing strip there in, in, uh, in Houston. And, and they, three of them died back in 1967. I, we lived there at that time, and, and I remember the, just the sorrow of, of this town, of the death of this, their own boy. And the, so there's, there's signs pointing to, to Mitchell about Gus Grissom, and he's got a street name for him. We lived on Grissom Street. And, and there's actually a museum there out on the outskirts of town in the state park with the, one of his rockets there. But even if you thought Gus Grissom was the greatest astronaut that ever lived, no one's going to mistake Mitchell, Indiana, of three or 4,000 people, with the great cities of the world. New York, Nairobi, Rio de Janeiro, Paris, Bangkok. I mean, no one's going to mistake those. And yet, out of this little place, something happens. And I think that's what Micah and Matthew are trying to help us understand, that God can work in ways and through things that we could have never imagined. We look at ourselves and say, who am I? What could I ever accomplish for the kingdom of God? And I think they're both pointing and saying, well, look what came out of Bethlehem. You know, it's interesting to me that the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Back when I was in seminary and I was learning Hebrew, uh, I was translating the book of Ruth. And I remember thinking to myself, what is this? Why, why do they keep talking about this house of bread? What is this house of bread? And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, it's the town of Bethlehem. It, it took me a long time to get that. And it, it's what it means. And I can't help but think in my mind that that's in the back of Jesus' mind when he says to his disciples, I'm the bread of life. And when Jesus takes the loaves, the few loaves and the few fish and breaks them and feeds thousands of people, I can't help but wonder if in the back of Jesus' mind he's remembering house of bread. You know, bread's the, the staple for almost every people in the world. If you don't have anything else, you, you at least hopefully you have bread. It's the foundation of what most people in the world end up eating or forms of bread. And Jesus comes from this place that is called the house of bread and he becomes the bread of life for the rest of the world. He is the life giver 
of everything that people in the world are looking for, seeking, yearning, needing. And Bethlehem is the place that begins. But he's not just the one who is the bread of life. He also is the shepherd of his people. Matthew says that out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will shepherd his people, Israel. Shepherds are an interesting group of people in first century Palestine. By and large, they are looked down on. They, they tend to live uh, solitary lives. They tend to spend all their time with the sheep. And, and if you're a, a people who are part of the temple, part of the worship structure of Israel, really look down on them because they rarely were, were, were clean enough, uh, spiritually speaking, to come in and, and sacrifice and to worship. They were excluded from that. And most people looked at them and thought, man, those guys are out there. Let's just keep them out there. And God takes that whole mindset and turns it on its head. God embraces the idea of being a shepherd. David writes in the most famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. You see this, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The writer of Hebrews says, talks about the great shepherd of the sheep. Peter talks about the one who is the, the shepherd of the sheep. Revelation talks about the one who will come, the lamb who is the shepherd of my people. God embraces this role of shepherd. Partly because shepherds are essential. Clothing would be at a premium if it weren't for shepherds. The food supply would be greatly reduced if it weren't for shepherds. The sacrifices in the temple would come to a grinding halt if it weren't for shepherds. And, we, and people appreciate what shepherds can produce and do. They just don't want to really associate with them. But God takes that metaphor and says, I am the shepherd who cares for the sheep, who loves my sheep, who is there for my sheep, who sacrifices for my sheep. And this is what we see in Jesus as he comes to us. And God is always doing things in a way that surprises us. He brings redemption to all of creation, not by might and power, but through love and humility. He takes on himself a cross rather than a throne. He wears a crown of thorns instead of a crown of jewels. Nails are put into his hands, not a scepter. And it's not as if Jesus doesn't have power. I mean, Matthew says, out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd. When we think of a ruler, we think of someone who exhibits power and might and influence and who, and who brings people into, the, into his reign, through, typically through subjecting them. But Jesus comes as a shepherd who draws his people and loves his people and cares for his people and is gentle with his people and leads his people. No wonder Micah said, gets to the end of the prophecy we read today and he says, this one who will lead his flock, he will be our peace. Everybody in the world wants peace. Rome wants peace. But Rome realizes that if you're going to have peace in this world, 
You have to get that through threats and intimidation and violence and war. You have to make people submit to you in order to get peace. That's the kind of peace that Rome brings. And Jesus comes and says, that's not my peace. My peace is not like everybody else's peace. My peace comes through love and through sacrifice and surrender. And my peace isn't just of this world. My peace is eternal. My peace is within you. My peace is the kind of peace that, that is there for you even when all around you there's chaos. I think about our brothers and sisters around the world who live continually with threats, who live continually with persecution and opposition, and yet they talk about the peace of Christ. This is the peace that Jesus brings. peace, but all these things are really vulnerable metaphors. You think about, I mean, bread gets eaten, shepherds are, are looked down on or rejected, and peacemakers are trampled. We see that in this story. The same prophecy that leads the wise men to find Jesus helps Herod be pointed toward Jesus. The prophecy that, that reveals Jesus to them is the prophecy that's dangerous for Jesus. The prophecy that leads them to worship is the same prophecy that leads others to violence and death. And following Jesus is about being willing to be vulnerable as Jesus is. It's a call to, to recognize that, that the way of, of the cross is the way of life. When you think about the way people respond to this prophecy, there, there are some who embrace it, who embrace it with humility and love and passion and say, whatever, whatever the word of God wants to say to me, that's what I want. And that's how God is calling us to respond to his word. But Sometimes we respond to his word by using it to manipulate things to our own ends. And we see this all the time. People who use the word of God as, as a tool to oppress people, use the word of God as a tool to, to beat down people, we use the word of God as a, as a weapon. And instead of, of coming to the word in openness and vulnerability and passion, we come to the word of God thinking, how can I use this for my own ends? But that's not the only way. Those aren't the only ways that we can respond to the word of God. Maybe the most dangerous way is to ignore it. The religious leaders, they have the answer to the Magi's question. Where's the one who's born king of the Jews? They know in a moment, this is, the, this is it. It's Bethlehem. They just don't seem to care. It strikes me as so strange that these pagan astrologers come to Jerusalem and say, we've seen a star. Where's the king of the Jews? And when they find out, they run to Bethlehem. And the people there who know everything 
don't seem to be affected by it for a moment. I wonder if it's because life is good for them. They've accumulated a certain amount of power. They've accumulated a certain amount of wealth and status and prestige. Life is comfortable. Life is good. Let's not mess with it. I like the stuff of my life right now. I don't have time or energy. I'm not really interested in following Jesus, in chasing after Jesus, which is crazy because they've spent their lives waiting for this, for the Messiah. There is a sense in which one of the, one of the elements of what it means to be a Jew is to, is to anticipate and think about and process and look for the Messiah. And they have the opportunity to get on the ground floor of it. And they're not interested. Jesus in Matthew 9 looks at the crowd of people and says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And the reason for that is because the shepherds who are supposed to take care of them and lead them to God are ignoring them, manipulating them, using them, abusing them, whatever they can get out of these people for their own gain, they will get. And you know, there is bread of life and there's bread of death. There's the, there's the fresh bread that we eat that nourishes us and restores us and strengthens us. But there's also a kind of bread that is moldy and infested with insects. That if we eat it, will sicken us or worse. And the people of God are called to eat the living bread. But we are continually tempted to think that this bread is better. Because quite frankly, this bread maybe doesn't demand as much of us as this bread does. But this bread doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. And the great tragedy of this is not just for us. It's not just about our journey with Christ. It's not just about our spiritual health. It's about others who, for whom we are supposed to be bread as well. You know, I've never met anyone who opened a bakery just to feed their family. I mean, if you want to feed your family, you have to go to your kitchen. Why would you go through the, all the, the rigmarole and the, and the stress and the effort to buy the equipment and to secure permits and to stock it and to hire staff? Why would you go through all of that to open a bakery for the sole purpose of simply feeding your family? You wouldn't. No one would open a bakery and lock the doors, keep the doors locked all the time. But one of the great struggles of the church through the centuries has been thinking that all that we are as Christians individually and corporately is just about us. We have, this, we have this great worship and we have intense fellowship and we have deep teaching. But if all we do is, is just think of it with closed doors, we've missed the point of the gospel. We open a bakery 
to feed other people. And we eat the living bread so that we can be living bread for other people. There is, there's something in the back of my mind that says, wouldn't it be awesome if, like Bethlehem, is the house of bread out of which the living bread is, is sent? What if, as the church, we would become sort of a house of bread out of which we go to feed the world. And it's hard. You know, I've, honestly, I don't, I don't want to be eaten. I don't want to be rejected and, 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 and neglected and looked down on, and I don't want to be trampled. But we are reminded that the way of life is the way of the cross. And the way that God redeems all of creation is through the cross. Bethlehem is the beginning of that. But here's the thing that I'm coming to understand. When, when we understand the living bread and when we are eating the living bread and we're filled with the living bread, we begin to realize that, that sharing that bread with others is not so much a duty and a responsibility as it is a privilege. We get to be bread for people who are hungry. We get to be hope for people who are hopeless. We get to be joy for people who feel despair. We get to be life for people who are dying. We get the privilege of being image bearers of Christ and of sharing the, his bread with one another and with others. And when you begin to see it that way, it changes our whole perspective. It becomes an act of love for Jesus by loving other people and sharing the bread that he's given us with those who are hungry and to see the joy in their lives when they begin to eat that bread and are transformed as we are. And so we come to this table this morning, this table of bread and cup. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we, we, we eat and drink the body and blood of Christ, and, and we receive once again the food of who he is. But we also do this so that we have resources and strength to go and to share that bread with other people. And we begin to understand that the kingdom, the glorious kingdom of God, is about all of creation being restored and renewed. And the joy, the privilege of getting to be a part of that. Holy Father, we thank you that Jesus, the living bread, has come to us. We pray, Father, that, that you will help us to, to share that bread with others as well. You'll give us a passion to do just that. Father, we pray your anointing and your blessing upon the bread and the cup 
which we are about to partake this morning. May it be food for our souls. And may it be food that we can share with others in our lives. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.